Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Welcome to Banking Weekly from the Financial Times with me, Patrick Jenkins. Joining me in the studio today is David Crow, our banking editor. We are joined down the line from Tokyo by Robin Harding, our bureau chief there, and also from New York by Laura Noonan, our US banking editor. Our guest this week is Christian Wilson from Share Action, the investor group. This week, we'll be taking a look at Barclays as it comes under fire for its environmental record from Share Action, an investor group, a look at Japan as its regional banks get overhauled, and finally, from Laura in New York, a report on a clutch of results. First, though, to Barclays. And David, you wrote an interesting story with our investment correspondent the other day about Barclays coming under attack from Share Action over its record on financing fossil fuels. What exactly has been said? So Barclays, like many other banks, is under pressure to stop financing coal-fired power plants and that sort of thing. And in this instance, there's 11 institutional investors. Together, they manage collectively £130 billion. There are some big names in there, as well as some small individual shareholders. This, we're told, is the first resolution of its kind in Europe. And it puts Barclays in a tricky spot because they, like everybody else, talk a good game when it comes to green finance and sort of signing up to the various initiatives. But actually putting their money where their mouth is and changing the profile of their lending book doesn't seem to be happening. Well, let me bring in our guest now, Christian Wilson, who's a senior researcher at Share Action. Christian, thanks very much for being with us. Tell us, why have you gone after Barclays like this? So the reason we've chosen Barclays is that Barclays really is a global player when it comes to fossil fuel financing. It's in the top 10 globally. It's number one in Europe. And we think just in absolute terms, from an investor perspective, it makes sense to really focus in on Barclays because they're such a big player in this space. When we think about Barclays and their investment bank, of course, it's very much split between Europe and America. But actually, When we look at Barclays and we compare their policy against the major U.S. investment banks, the U.S. investment banks that finance even more than Barclays do, Barclays is actually not ahead relative to them in terms of the progressiveness of their policy. When we compare them to Europe, where Barclays is really number one in terms of fossil fuel financing, they're far behind some of their peers. And so we think this is an opportunity for Barclays to really show leadership in America and really catch up with its European peers when it comes to fossil fuel financing. So what would you like to see them do? Would you like to see them stop lending to coal companies, to oil companies altogether? Because that would be quite a dramatic shift, obviously. What the resolution asks, what the key ask is, is to ask Barclays to align its activities in the energy and utility sector with the Paris Agreement. And you just then kind of said that's quite a radical ask, but actually... When you look at the peers of Barclays and some of the largest investors in the world, 
they are already committing to do this. And from our point of view, Share Action and the 130 billion in investors who filed this with us, what we're saying is that your peers are doing this, Barclays. We think this is a gap in your strategy, and we would like you to develop a clear plan to fill that gap. So the question is, what does that mean in practice? Well, it means Barclays need to adjust their energy lending portfolio with the science over time. And that does not mean from day one, they can no longer finance an energy company at all. What it means is a clear timeline over time for them to phase that out. So for example, if we look at best practice in the sector at the moment, some banks are saying we will no longer finance companies reliant on coal by 2030 or 2025. And then also thinking about those extreme fossil fuels. And so although it may seem like a big step forward, this is actually being committed to by a lot of banks in the space already. And we are asking Barclays to kind of match that commitment and put it into practice. Are there any big banks that you would highlight as doing much better? Because there are obviously some smaller niche players that make a virtue of being far greener. But are there genuine peers to Barclays that are doing far better on this? Yeah, there are. There are. So Who would you highlight? Last year, we saw the principles for responsible banking being launched. And that was 47 trillion of assets being represented by the banking sector. And Barclays was one of the founding signatories of those principles. But then just after that, we saw this other commitment being launched. So we had 13 trillion of banks publicly committing to align their lending portfolios with the Paris Agreement. So essentially, exactly what we're asking for in this resolution. And that included SOCGEN, it included BNP, it included Standard Chartered, Credit Agricole and Santander. So the biggest European banks in this space, apart from Barclays and the UK banks. And basically, when we look at the individual policy level at some of these banks, for example, Credit Agricole is committing to phase out coal by 2030 in Europe, 2040 outside of Europe, and 2050 in the rest of the world, particularly in China. And so that's really best practice at the moment that we're seeing. And there's no reason the Barclays can't match that. And that's what we're really hoping they do. It's not so much Barclays coming under attack, but we think this is a great opportunity for Barclays just to show leadership to its customers and to its shareholders. And it's important to stress this is a phase out, but it's a gradual phase out. This is not going to be an abrupt stop for all financing tomorrow. We just need a strong policy in place to make sure that Barclays aligns with science. Let me come back to David for a final word on this. Firstly, do you agree with those points? Is this a reasonable request that is deliverable? even if Barclays wanted to do it? And secondly, is it going to go through a shareholder vote, do you think? Well, I think these other banks show that it is deliverable in a sort of phased manner. And so you just kind of work with clients over a period of, in some cases, up to a decade to try to get them to change their business models. And if they haven't done it by the end of that period, then you unbank them and somebody else takes that business. I think the problem for Barclays, that list of the banks that had agreed to align their portfolios with the Paris Climate Agreement, the one thing that they all share is the fact that they don't have a big presence on Wall Street and Barclays does. And so people inside the bank say that that means that they are naturally more exposed to fossil fuels and so on. But the other big problem, putting this in the wider context of what's going on at Barclays, is their corporate and investment bank is under attack from an activist. Ed Bramson has been for over a year now. And they really feel that they can't sacrifice any revenue at the moment because they need to show that this unit is worth keeping in its current form. Well, it's going to be a fascinating story to see it play out at the shareholder meeting. Thank you very much for joining us, Christian, from ShareAction. Thank you for having me. Let's move on now to our second topic and a look at the Japanese 
banking sector. We're joined by Robin Harding, our Tokyo bureau chief. Robin, thanks for joining us. It's an interesting bit of news that basically Japan's top regulator has come out with a pretty drastic plan to shake up the regional lenders in Japan, which have been through a pretty torrid time thanks to the ultra-low interest rate environment and generally low growth in the domestic market. Tell us more. So it's really interesting. This was an interview with the FT and the chief of the financial services agency, Toshihide Endo ran through what's really quite a huge program of reform for the Japanese regional banks that he's been laying out over the last few months. So the regional banks have a real problem because it's very well known there's a declining population in Japan and that affects regional Japan most of all. So the banks have a huge problem in that there's very little loan demand for them. They have huge deposits from the increasingly elderly populations in the regions, but, but nobody to lend them to. What they used to do was buy Japanese government bonds, which yielded 1% or 2%, but because of the Bank of Japan's negative interest rates, they no longer do. So these banks have been suffering chronically lower profitability. And what the FSA has basically decided is that there's no way out of this and they're not going to sit there and regulate their loan books, but instead they're going to try and push the banks to completely change their business models. And the kind of thing that's being suggested is that, you know, you regional banks, you're the only people in your region who know anything much about finance. So the idea is that the regional banks should actually advise companies on how they should grow, what might be a new operation, whether they could sell abroad, and even that they could go beyond that and become management consultancies to these companies, or even actual trading companies buying the products of regional companies and selling them on to customers. And when you think about that, and when you think about what a bank is, that's really quite a big departure. And so this program that the FSA is rolling out has the potential to reshape the Japanese regional banking system quite significantly. A final thought from you. Obviously, Japan is kind of a petri dish for the financial experiment that we're seeing in much of the rest of the world now, that Japan was basically ahead of the curve, not necessarily in a good way. But are there lessons here for European banks in particular that are finding it very difficult to make money in an ultra-low interest rate world? Well, the Japanese banks haven't pulled off this trick yet of transforming their business models. Although I think there is a lesson in what the FSA has discovered, because for 20 years after Japan's banking crisis in the 1990s, they basically responded by being extremely strict regulators and just being by the book on what the regional banks were able to lend. That was fine as far as it went, but what it's done is perpetuate this problem that they have no sustainable business model and no way of making money. So if this new experiment, this attempt to change the business model is successful, then I think it will provide a really interesting model for others in Europe and elsewhere to follow in the future. We shall watch closely. Robin, thanks very much for joining us. My pleasure. Let's move on to our third and final topic for the day and a look at the US bank results. So, Laura, we've had a trio of banks reporting on Tuesday, JP Morgan, Citigroup and Wells Fargo. Citigroup and JP both look pretty good. Yeah, so Citigroup and JP Morgan both put in great quarters. If we look at JP Morgan Chase first, they have their strongest ever profit in dollar terms. The really remarkable thing is their return on equity is now actually at its highest level in 10 years. 
but it's closing in on pre-crisis levels. And that's really remarkable if you think that this is a bank which now holds about 100 billion more equity than it did 10 years ago, and yet they're able to get the return on, on equity close to levels seeing pre-crisis. Citigroup also had a pretty good quarter and a pretty good end to the year, and that was lifted by the same things that lifted JP Morgan Chase, which was the consumer businesses are still strong for both of them. And then we also saw there was a strong rebound in markets earnings in the fourth quarter. Now, everyone expected markets to be strong. They just didn't expect them to be as strong as they were. So in the case of JP Morgan, trading revenues rose 56% in the fourth quarter versus a year earlier. The bank had guided that it would be meaningfully up, but people didn't think that by meaningfully they meant more than 50%. In the case of City as well, they also showed a big jump. Just out of interest, Laura, the JP Morgan return on equity number you mentioned getting close to pre-crisis levels. What actually was the number for 2019? So if we look at it on the basis of return on tangible common equity, JP Morgan and Chase did 19% for 2019. That's the highest level we saw since 2007 when they did 22%. They had 24% in 2006. So they really have managed to get their returns to shareholders back right up there again, even though they're now holding so much more equity than they previously did. So JP and City both riding a high, at least for the time being. Wells Fargo is the third company to report on Tuesday. A very different story there, though. Yeah, Wells Fargo just continues to show signs of this scandal that they really haven't managed to shake off. So basically, they've been suffering for years now. They have a new chief executive. They put through a lot of costs in the fourth quarter and they managed to miss on pretty much everything. I mean, they missed on the revenues by a pretty narrow amount, but they also missed on earnings by quite a bit. Non-interest expenses were high. The litigation costs were high. So the new chief executive, Charlie Sharp, he's basically been saying that he has to come in and make fundamental changes and that there are clearly opportunities to improve the bank's performance. I don't think anybody would debate that. So I guess what we see here is a new chief executive coming in. There's often an element of a new CEO wanting to kitchen sink all of the bad charges in their first quarter. And then that kind of clears the decks for him to try to show progress then going forward. And of Charlie Scharf, of course, a JP Morgan alumnus. So they must be hoping that some of that JP magic rubs off on them. We'll keep an eye. Thanks for that, Laura. That's all for this week. Thank you very much to David Crow, Robin Harding and Laura Noonan. And our guest this week, Christian Wilson from Share Action. Thank you for listening. Remember, you can keep up to date with all of the latest banking stories at ft.com slash banking. Banking Weekly was produced by Fiona Simon. Until next week, goodbye. Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health 
Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.